Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. I'd like to welcome everyone again uh, today for another in our series of interviews uh, with the experts. I'm joined here today by uh, my colleague, Dr. Marisha Tweet, who's an associate professor of medicine, and she's a consultant in uh, the Division of Ischemic Heart Disease, as well as with a joint appointment in their Division of Cardiovascular Ultrasound. So welcome, Marisha. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. So we're here to talk about uh, SCAD, or spontaneous coronary artery dissection. Dr. Tweet is uh, quite an expert in this area. This has been a uh, long-standing interest of hers, and she's published widely on this and is considered one of the uh, uh, true experts in this uh, field. Just to set the scene, uh, we'll recall that uh, spontaneous coronary artery dissection, or we'll just call it SCAD for the remainder of our uh, discussion here, uh, generally presents as an emergency uh, acute coronary syndrome, usually as a non-STEMI or a STEMI, occasionally with uh, malignant arrhythmias, very uncommonly with uh, sudden cardiac death. We know that this is uh, related to uh, some weakness in the, uh, the intermural or subintermural uh, part of the coronary vessel, uh, usually manifests as an intramural hematoma and is generally diagnosed uh, with uh, coronary angiography. The, the findings uh, can be uh, subtle or they can be really uh, gross. But it's an increasing um, or increasingly recognized cause or acute myocardial infarction, particularly in young to middle-aged patients uh, with a preponderance to women. These patients usually uh, have an absence of the typical uh, risk factors. So with that in mind, what we want to focus on at discussion today with you, uh, Dr. Tweet, is the follow-up. And so you see, uh, well, you have seen you know, probably hundreds of these patients now uh, over the years. So seeing a lot of these in outpatient follow-up. So there's a number of uh, important questions that uh, many of them may have. And let me just start off with the, uh, the first uh, question. And that is, uh, what do you tell these patients uh, when they ask you whether the SCAD will occur again? I thank you again for the introduction about SCAD. And uh, it is in a question I hear from pretty much every patient. And if you look at the early literature about SCAD, it was, well, one, primarily autopsy studies, and two, the idea of recurrence really wasn't there. But as our recognition of SCAD has increased, we are recognizing that SCAD can occur again. And I do tell patients that, which, as you can imagine, is a source of anxiety, but very important for them to know. When it occurs again, it usually occurs as an acute coronary syndrome, at least as per our current knowledge. So in other words, myocardial infarction or sudden cardiac arrest. And what we have noticed is it tends to occur in a different coronary artery. Therefore, as many already know, management is conservative when we can. And we do stent the vessel open or do bypass surgery if we need to, for example, in the setting of hemodynamic instability or a coronary occlusion. But uh, stenting, for example, doesn't seem to associate with less recurrent SCAD. And I think in part of that is due to it occurring in a different coronary in many cases. When I talk to patients how frequent another SCAD may or may not be, um, really I, I review the literature with them. And it, it depends and varies a bit on um, which publication you're looking at, which research group you're looking at in terms of those numbers. Um, but generally, uh, when you kind of look at all of the different articles out there, it ranges between probably 10 to 20%. In our Olmsted County experience at five years, 
about 10% of the patients in Olmsted County will have had a second SCAD. And in our registry experience, which does have somewhat of a selection bias, but we have 1,500 patients in that registry, it's about 15% at five years. Naturally, another question would be how to prevent it, which uh, we can talk about further at another time. But essentially, uh, there's a lot of research going into that because it's probably a multifactorial disease. But two key things I focus on with patients is good blood pressure control. And if they can tolerate it, we do try to continue a beta blocker. Um, we also try to screen for other arteriopathies, such as dissections, aneurysms, and fibromuscular dysplasia elsewhere. Are there any risk factors that you've identified among these patients that uh, may predispose them to uh, further SCAD events? That's an excellent question, and we're still working on that. There are associations with SCAD that we see, um, one of them being high blood pressure, which is a present in about a third of patients. And that is one thing that we can control, so to speak, or, or treat, whereas other predispositions, like a genetic predisposition, which we think this is probably more of a polygenetic disease, um, we don't have so much control over, so to speak, at least at this point in our science. So um, blood pressure is one. Beta blockers, there was one single retrospective study suggesting less SCAD with patients on beta blockers, but that was one study that has not been yet reproduced. We're looking at other things, and, but it's, again, multifactorial. So there's not one single item that falls out as, yep, that will be the person who has another SCAD. I hope in five to 10 years, after more research, that'll be different and we'll have better, more refined risk scores. Now, now many of these patients have presented with SCAD in the setting of some very stressful event or, or exercise. So one of the questions I'm sure you get asked frequently is, is it safe to exercise uh, after uh, this event? And recognizing that for a typical, you know, atherosclerotic uh, type uh, acute myocardial infarction exercise is very, very important in terms of cardiac rehab. How, how do you answer those questions? Uh, and that's also a great question. First, I'd start with making sure the patient's been referred to cardiac rehabilitation because not all patients are, especially if they appear young and healthy. Sometimes the team caring for them kind of don't even think about that. But really, both in our work, but others work as well, Cardiac rehabilitation is associated with, one, it's safe, but associated with improvement in mental health and physical health for patients. Um, it is also important that those caring for the patients in cardiac rehab are at least aware of what SCAD is, um, in part because a proportion of patients are not only athletic, but some are even a small minority, mind you, but are even at least athletes, where either it's part of their livelihood or it's something that they really take seriously and are competitive about. So we start with cardiac rehab, often tailored to the individual. So it may look a little different than some of the other patients' course. And then in terms of long-term, we did write an article that recently was published uh, in 2021 in the European Heart Journal, summarizing thoughts regarding future exercise. And this was by myself, Dr. Hayes, Dr. Olin, Dr. Adlam, and Dr. Bonakowski. Um, because the challenge with counseling patients about future exercises is there are a, little, a lot of unknowns and perhaps about a third of patients that we're aware of have some kind of association with exertion. So we commonly encourage regular exercise, but we say to a moderate level, we encourage patients to have good form. If they're going to lift weights, we encourage high repetitions, low weights, 
And we really encourage avoidance of doing a Valsalva maneuver. So some patients are given, you know, a peak upper limit of weight, which can be anywhere between, you know, 20 to 30 pounds for women or 50 pounds for men. I try to actually avoid that and rather say, if you're able to lift it without bearing down and changing your intrathoracic pressure, you're, you're probably okay. So if you're able to lift it and speak and breathe through it comfortably, that's probably an okay weight for you to be lifting. But if you're not able to, and you're bearing down, holding your breath, then that weight is too great for you. So Olympic um, weightlifting is out. Correct. And we discourage contact sports and competitive sports. Some of the things are borderline, like there are patients who are marathon runners and they want to get back to marathon running. So, um, you know, aerobic exercise with some caution and trying to keep it at a moderate level. So those are the patients that I say, try to exercise comfortably and right. maybe not always try for your personal best. And if you start having symptoms, give yourself permission to back off. There's a lot of nuanced counseling in that regard and it can be very challenging. Many times I also engage our, our colleagues in our exercise physiology kind of with that expertise. So uh, Dr. Bonikowski and Dr. Squires here at Mayo Clinic, I'll often engage and get their input. For some patients, we'll even do like an exercise VO2 stress test and, and create kind of a unique exercise prescription for them. It, Very challenging, it's isn't it, when there's a, there's a, a lot of unknowns. Let, let, let's move to another group of patients. I mean, one of the classic presenters is, uh, you know, the postpartum or the peripartum uh, patients. And, and unfortunately, uh, we, we see this from time to time. Uh, in such a patient, uh, what do you advise regarding uh, future uh, pregnancy? So that is also a very difficult discussion. Currently, I discourage pregnancy in all of my patients who've had a prior scan. There are some patients where that doesn't align with their personal views. They are have high value for having a future pregnancy. And as you can imagine, if you're a young, you know, early 20-year-old who maybe doesn't even have a partner yet, that kind of news is quite life-changing. We have done some work looking at pregnancy after SCAD, and there are a fair number of patients who do okay. And we share that. So if our patient's interested in pregnancy, I share that data and do a lot of dedicated preconceptual counseling, so to speak, with their partner as well. Um, but I, I still discourage it for a couple of reasons. One, pregnancy-associated SCAD is associated with a worse presentation. So things like multivessel SCAD, STEMI, cardiac arrest, complications. Um, and that's been shown by our data, data elsewhere, so re replicated. And two, as we already discussed, we're not really great at recognizing who's at increased risk for recurrent SCAD. And we're not, we don't have therapies to foolproof, you know, prevent it. We're, you know, still trying to learn how to treat it even. Right. Um, so for those two reasons, I'm very discouraging of it. But with that said, we have supported women who and their partners who are very much interested when considering the risks, benefits, and unknowns with proceeding. And in those cases, we engage our experts in maternal fetal medicine and create a very crafted plan of how to proceed. And again, um, we've reported in the literature, but others have as well, that there are patients, a small percentage of SCAD patients who do get pregnant. They don't all have another SCAD automatically, which again, emphasizes that this is a multifactorial sure. process. So it is a nuanced discussion. I can only imagine how difficult those discussions uh, must uh, unfold. Maybe just in the last minute before we wrap up here, uh, Richard, 
Anything to share with us in terms of what's new, particularly in terms of our understanding of why this disease uh, occurs? Well, I think something that's really exciting is the work in the genetic space. One, there's not a single SCAD gene, so it's complicated. It's, we've noted multiple modes of inheritance. Only 1% roughly of our registry are we see familial SCAD. So a large proportion of patients do not have a family member with SCAD. But there is definitely evidence in the work we've been doing, as well as others, that this is a polygenetic process, probably influenced in part by the environment. The reason why this is so exciting is I think this will just help us better understand etiology. And perhaps there is more than one mechanism for SCAD patients in regards to how they end up being vulnerable for SCAD. And also, um, I'm hoping that that will help clue us in in terms of determining risk as well as uh, treatment options down the road um, as we better understand what causes this to begin with. Well, that's very interesting. And I, uh, I would just encourage people to stay tuned uh, for that. You know, the work that you and colleagues, uh, both at Mayo and uh, outside of Mayo, are doing in this very hepstool, poorly understood disease and certainly frightening for so many of our patients uh, is really highly appreciated. So thank you so much uh, for joining us today, uh, Marisha, and uh, good luck with the rest of your research uh, in, in this area. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.